Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Well, welcome everybody. I'm James Huttle. I'm Professor of Development Studies. Um, and on behalf of the LSE and the Department of International Development at the school, I welcome you to the first of this year's series, the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice. Uh, I'm co-convening the series with Duncan Green, Professor of Practice in International Development. We really have an extraordinary lineup this year. Uh, next week, Hajun Chang is speaking to the issue of, he's, he's speaking to the political economy of Parasite, the movie. Gabrielle Palmer is coming to talk the following week, uh, titled Why the Rich Stay Rich No Matter What. We're joined by Claire Short in the following meeting, who will be talking about uh, aid. At former and founding Secretary of State, uh, for the Department for International Development, now de defunct, and she'll be reflecting on that. Mushtaq Khan is joining us from SOAS. Actually, he'll be speaking from Bangladesh and speaking about new approaches to fighting corruption. Jayati Ghosh will be speaking about the pandemic and the corporate control over, uh, over pharmaceutical, over the vaccine and the vaccine release. We have Agnes Kalibata, the head of the Green Revolution for Africa, who will be joining us in the series, Ingrid Sinas, and we'll be finishing this term series with Terrace Clark and Mosharaf Hossein on the International Day of Disabled People, speaking about disability and development. So it's that's just this term, and we'll go on next term too um, until about uh, late February. So join us, mark it down in your diary for 4 p.m. London time uh, every Friday afternoon during term time. Now, let me start with the topic of today, where we're trying to understand what has happened in Afghanistan and what are the challenges going forward now that the Taliban has returned to power, the challenges for the nation as a whole and the challenges for women. We have quite a stellar lineup. I will only provide you brief introductions right now to them, to them. but please, you can reference on our website uh, their stellar records and careers. Dr. Antonio Gustazzi, I welcome you back to the LSE for many years. Antonio was the lead person in our Crisis States Research Center. Um, he probably knows more about the Taliban and the oligarchy in Afghanistan than many of them know about themselves. He's with the Royal United Services Institute. He's written many articles and seven books. 
I'm not going to list all the books, but mention Koran, Kalashnikov and Laptop, the Neo-Taliban Insurgency, and one of his most recent books, The Taliban at War, which I really recommend any of you, all of you to read who would like to understand more the evolution of, uh, of recent history in Afghanistan. So Antonio, welcome back to the school. Denise Candiati, my old friend, emeritus professor of development studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, the University of London. Uh, she holds degrees from the University of Paris, Sorbonne, and the London School of Economics and Political Science. She was also on the faculty of the Middle East uh, Technical University uh, and Bogatia University in Turkey. She's worked on Turkey, post-Soviet Central Asia and Afghanistan, and developed comparative perspectives on state, gender, and power in the broader Muslim wor world. She made key theoretical contributions to analyses of patriarchy and male dominance, and she'll be able to bring those perspectives to bear today. Um, notable among her publications are Gendering the Middle East, Women, Islam, and the State, Gender Governance and Islam, um, was co-authored in 2019. So Denise, welcome back to the LSE. Now, I'm really privileged to be able to introduce to you two Afghan women who are participating tonight. Dr. Ozala Nemat is an internationally known Afghan scholar and think tank leader. She's an expert in political ethnography, holding a PhD in development studies from SOAS, and an MSc in Development Planning from the University College London. Dr. Nemeth has firsthand experience in how it is to be a war refugee for 14 years in Pakistan. Dr. Nemeth is currently chairing the Open Society Foundation's Afghanistan Advisory Board and serves on Afghan Aid, a British charity working in, Af in Afghanistan as, as trustee. Dr. Nemeth was selected as Young Global Leader of the World Forum in 2009. And her accolades go on, but I'll stop there for the moment. And especially, I welcome Tashtana Durrani, who started her journey as an activist and human rights defender. She is now a community development expert focusing on digital literacy, SP, SRHR, MHM and WASH. She is the founder and director of grassroots level nonprofit Learn Afghanistan. Through Learn's project, Soraya, she has educated 900 girls and boys in Kandahar. Through project Aisha Durrani, she has trained more than 80 teachers in digital literacy. Through Learn's project, Malal Malalia Durrani, has reached out to 150 girls and trained them in menstrual hygiene management. She's speaking to us from somewhere in Afghanistan and we're so delighted that she joins us tonight. So without further ado, unless I've forgotten anything colleagues, I would like to turn the floor over first to Antonio Gustazzi. Uh, thank you. So uh, I've been asked to uh, try to answer this question, what happened uh, in Afghanistan, of course, is very difficult 
a complex question to answer. And forgive me, I had to start um, uh, looking back uh, a few years to the, the origins of the Islamic Republic. So the Bonn Agreement, uh, which led to the formation of a regime that we could describe as essentially uh, oligarchic republic, uh, where the power was largely concentrated in the hands of a number of, you know, I, I would call them oligarchs, we could call them warlords, uh, factional leaders, whatever, uh, with insertion of uh, some uh, so-called technocratic elements. And I think in the insertion of these elements were the seeds of instability as a power struggle started almost immediately between uh, the oligarchs on one side, which kind of managed to coexist with each other relatively well, and the technocrats who uh, in part were encouraged by elements of the international community, especially the Americans to become more assertive over time, especially from 2003 onwards. Uh, uh, you know, and basically they were trying to gradually uh, reduce the power uh, of, of the oligarchs. And of course the oligarchs are not particularly happy about that, you know, and that led to a conflict that never ended and you know, continued until the 15th of August uh, 2021. Uh, uh, and it was very destructive, you know, it became more and more destructive over time. If you look at the elections in Afghanistan, how they became more and more controversial. Um, you know, to be honest, there was rigging in, already in the first elections, but things got much worse uh, every, uh, every successive election to the point that, you know, the, the last election where hardly, you know, I would say that probably the German Democratic Republic was uh, probably more uh, honest in running its election than um, in Afghanistan at that point. So, uh, you know, th this was very destructive, you know, not only because, of course, that led to essentially non-legitimate governments, you know, where a substantial part of the political elite itself contested the legitimacy of the president, and especially Ghani, uh, after his first mandate, became very controversial, uh, but also because this competition was happening everywhere, at the level of the provinces, the level of the ministries, and became more and more destructive, you know, essentially, over the last couple of years, the Islamic Republic already started unraveling. And you know, already last, at the end of winter, beginning of spring, salaries uh, stopped getting paid, even to the army, because the theft and the siphoning off of state funds reached the point where you know, the priority was to uh, accumulate funds for the fashion of struggle, not for uh, keeping the army fighting. Of course, in a situation where the Taliban instead were already advancing in the countryside. So faith fragility is, was centrally there and was aggravated over time. And then the regional dynamics had a major impact. Um, I think the Americans don't seem to have realized that especially after they, they made clear they were going to stay for the long haul and they started uh, increasing their presence in the country, uh, they didn't realize that they would have had devastating consequences at the regional level where none of the regional powers would actually happy, except India, about the increasing American presence. And that was seen as antagonizing by all the regional powers. Uh, that was not only like, you know, um, verbal uh, uh, complaints that they were uh, aired at Americans, essentially uh, almost everybody started supporting the Taliban on one stage or the other. So the Taliban at one point were making 
hundreds and hundreds of millions every year, uh, thanks to the support provided by a variety of regional powers, of which Pakistan is, of course, the most widely advertised, but Iran also contributed a lot. Our point is Saudi Arabia, the Ottoman, the Chinese, and also the Russians. Uh, and I only mentioned the, the main, the most important contributors. And that's because the American intervention was perceived as very destabilizing in, in different ways. And of course, the interests of China and Russia in Central Asia were a factor, but the Pakistani felt that American intervention was strengthening their rivals, especially the Indians. And, and the Iranians were worried about uh, American influence and the fact that, uh, especially under Ghani, the Saudis seem to have uh, quite, a, quite, quite a voice uh, in Kabul, which of course then was anathema. So this region, the regional dynamics, uh, of course, provided the sources, the resources of the Taliban to, to expand, to grow, and to become more and more sophisticated. We have to say the Taliban, of course, are quite good at adapting. And I think Nietzsche would be proud of them. You know, the Taliban are an example of, you know, what, what doesn't kill me strengthens me. And the Americans were not able to destroy them. The, the Taliban emerged much stronger at the end, you know, they really evolved essentially at the, as a military organization and became much more capable at the end. And now they are among the masters of hybrid warfare. I wouldn't say they reached the level of abilities of the Hezbollah of Lebanon, but they made quite substantial progress uh, on that path. And then, you know, we see in the last few months how all these dynamics intensified. Um, we've seen how uh, you know, the final month of the Islamic Republic were the result of these power struggles uh, becoming almost paroxistic, you know, with Ghani ordering initially the army in the Northwest not to fight because he wanted the Taliban to destroy the militias of his rival, General Dostum. Uh, and he thought that then the army could go on the offensive and destroy the Taliban. Instead, you know, he did manage to destroy the Dostum militias, but then the army was not able to go on the offensive and the Taliban started uh, spreading everywhere. And all the other power brokers, as uh, Ghani called them, starting from Saladin Rabban in the Northeast, decided that given Ghani's agenda, they would rather make this with the Taliban. So one after the other, they made this with the Taliban and surrendered big chunks of Afghanistan, first the Northeast, then the West, then the South, uh, to the Taliban. And that, of course, meant at that point, uh, it was all lost already. Uh, and that was all due to fighting. And even the fall of Kabul was a result of the fighting with Ghani, uh, apparently out of spite, decided not to hand power to the uh, uh, to a coalition or essentially an interim government. Instead, he fled the country, allowing the Khanis to enter and take Kabul, you know, basically trying to sabotage the interim government. And with which, of course, has very major implications uh, because the, the Khani control over Kabul preempted the formation of uh, uh, interim or coalition government. And that, of course, is, is having a, a very heavy consequences now. So now I suppose the question is uh, what happens next? And um, of course, you know, foreseeing the future is difficult, but the Taliban didn't expect this outcome. Even on the 14th of August, we're still hoping or thinking, as they were being told, there would be some kind of interim government in which they, of course, would have had the dominant position. Uh, and therefore, they were thinking that that would allow the transition, would uh, bring with, with it international recognition. So they arrived at this uh, with, the, with their currency in control, uh, challenging the power and the, the leadership of the sovereign Taliban. 
in a situation where the Taliban will not really have a plan B, you know. So now they are improvising, they're trying to uh, find a way out of the mess, but they don't really know how. They, they are paralyzed by the internal struggles. And uh, even at the international level, there are the kind of uh, recognition, legitimization issues uh, are, are stuck. You know, they can't get for now any, any uh, country in the region, uh, not to speak beyond the region, to recognize them. You know, that means that they don't get any aid. Uh, they don't, of course, get uh, the government money, which is stored uh, in the United States. And therefore, they can't really run the government. Um, and, and the risk now is state collapse, of course, that there is uh, uh, famine, you know, I think probably the WFP will be able to contain that, but basically the, the, the medium-term risk is a collapse of the uh, Afghan state, because of course, if you don't pay salaries, uh, people are not gonna stay there and wait for, for too long. Thank you, we'll be able to come back to you. <laughs> Thank you very much, um, Professor Pazal, and it's um, obviously a great pleasure and honor to be in this panel chaired by you, uh, whom I meet for the first time, but I've been familiar with your work and engaged with your writings in my own research, and also uh, Professor Candioti is my, like I always say, is my inspirational uh, academic uh, mother, <laughs> and it's really an honor also to be um, on the panel with um, uh, Antonio, uh, whose work I have closely followed, at least in the areas of politics in development. Last but not least, also an honor to be uh, on the panel with uh, Pashtana Dorani, uh, my fellow sister from Afghanistan, who is uh, still on the ground, remaining hopeful and uh, committed to work for the cause of women uh, and girls' education. Um, I will just uh, sort of uh, take this opportunity to um, directly go into the uh, conversation in terms of responding to some of the questions posed um, by starting um, to mention that the events from the last, uh, since February 29, 2020, um, in my opinion, is clearly uh, putting under question a large number of claims and assumptions. That's an external intervention. Um, uh, with the purpose of liberal peace building will result in actual institution building, democratic systems, and eventually a stronger state. Um, and, and why it questions, because everything we've seen happened in August 2021 is the consequences and the results of the agreement between the United States of America on behalf of the international community, obviously, and also uh, the uh, the Taliban's uh, um, political office in Qatar. Uh, Antonio excellently discussed and referred to the history of the past in the Bonn, conf uh, Bonn conference, which resulted to the creation of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan in 2001. Um, um, and so I will not go too much into details, but very briefly looking into the situation and how things have evolved takes me back to my research where I have looked very deeply into how external, external interventions are shaping power relations at the local level in the case of Afghanistan. What I highlighted in my research then was a salient characteristic of the elite definition that overlooked some typical uh, sort of, uh, um, uh, that overlooked some elements of of elite definition that exists in countries affected by conflict, 
and with massive level of external intervention. So in some cases, probably Afghanistan is a unique case, but uh, if we look into other countries, maybe it's not entirely. And um, I'm just noticing that this actually definition I've engaged with is, uh, is uh, from a, a paper I read uh, by you, uh, Professor James and uh, uh, Professor Dijon, where the definitions of elites are discussing about, you know, the position of valued assets in agriculture, manufacturing, these, these are kind of characteristics of, that defines elites in a country. Or for example, those who have power in terms of you know, their, uh, uh, over the distribution of resources in their locality, or those who come with socio-political you know, bases or class bases, economic or socio-cultural, and even re religious bases. In the case of Afghanistan, what happens with the elite is this major factor of external dependencies, either regional or international, both have played an a tremendous role in how the politics in Afghanistan shaped and how we see it going to a very sort of an extreme way up and then dragging down in the very um, overnight way of um, uh, seeing as we uh, witnessed. So somehow this external dependency becomes like a key determinant to, to see that the level or the, 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 the the size or the, the, the amount of this dependency or the intensity, if I can find the right uh, sort of wording for it, the intensity determines how they are making or acting uh, in terms of specific political decisions. And surprisingly, or maybe not much surprisingly, what we have seen happen to the Afghan political elites in the very short period of uh, a month, uh, very close to uh, uh, fall of Kabul uh, government is uh, is exactly this. None of our elites, uh, in the absence of international uh, engagement or actors backing them, resourceful, resource-wise or politically, they just lost themselves, and they even forgot some dollars and money in the country and their houses or in their certain places, let alone the rest of it. And so that in itself is a lot to reflect on in terms of you know looking at how these are happening now. Whether the Taliban also comes into the elite or not, I think they are not exempted from this. Antonio was uh, mentioning about Taliban's external resources. This is a force that has much more, maybe relatively unified de dependencies to the regional countries. And that in itself, in the history of Afghanistan is always a switch between Afghanistan being a subject of major powers interventions or regional powers. So now we are, like I uh, once uh, reflected on the new situation as some Taliban were framing this as an independent of Afghanistan. I said, no, it's not actually an independent. We've just entered a new phase of the same uh, sort of um, occupation or invasions that we are talking about. We will, hopeful, we will be hopeful to see one day uh, independent Afghanistan, but we are not anywhere close to that. So before going to that, I just wanted to um, also um, sort of expand very briefly using a few uh, remaining minutes in terms of seeing that how and why this, this, this government has collapsed as we talk about it. You see, um, there is a famous well-known uh, German uh, poet and theater writer who's Bertolt Brecht, who said, you know, those who don't know the truth and make a mistake, they are committing a sin. But those who know the truth and deliberately are making mistakes are criminals. I, I read this in Persian, so I'm translating to criminals. So I think 
to put it in very simple wording, the international actors involved in the crisis of Afghanistan, as well as the former regime leadership, have to pick which group of these two are they sort of belonging to. Um, more sort of elaborating on, on the reasons of collapse, I think, uh, as you know, I see everything through the lens of governance and how that has really collapsed. The collapse was not this overnight um, way of everyone finding them surprisingly in Kabul or everyone finding themselves running away from Kabul. I mean, Taliban versus the government, it actually was more systematic. And what we have observed over the last um, uh, few years, particularly after the 2019 election or the earlier, the 2018 elections that with all the disputes and the problems that it faced, was a very systematic, you know, uh, 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 complex process of over-centralization that happened. We have witnessed and seen a very gradual but more systematic dysfunctioning of the uh, different uh, ministries in, 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 in the uh, Afghan government, from Ministry of Finance to even, there are examples of Ministry of Health not having the authority to declare a holiday or a break because of the outbreak of coronavirus, because they see politically we wouldn't be not looking very well. And so even health was sacrificed by that. So this collapse was not an overnight, even if we had a sort of a scenario of a temporary government, the state was already dysfunctional because of over-centralization of power into this very private enterprise type of a government that was limited, not geographically or physically to the ARG or the presidential palace, but to a very small circle of uh, people who have monopolized the entire decision-making authority and political power over the country. So when you bring everything and make it into this very, very tiny circle of people, it was obvious that we will see this. Um, having said that, I also have to quickly mention about other uh, issue that I observe, and of course these things require probably longer, I'm in terms of ethnography, we have to go, we have to have longer uh, discussions about these things. But in terms of patronage politics, I strongly argue in my own research about you know, how the Afghan system have been a patronage system and it has worked and operated pre-2014 strongly through patronage politics. President Ghani, probably knowing a little bit about this, has made efforts to really disempower some of the strongmen or warlords or factional leaders that uh, we were mentioning before. However, the tragedy of the fact is that he never thought of how to replace them. So, I mean, just a reflection in terms of those who are looking into these matters and even other contexts is that if you really don't have a strong alternative, don't touch this patronage politics because in some way or other, probably it will have some results and not faced with the kind of crisis and situation that we were. I will just quickly end by um, mentioning, as I believe probably my time is over, uh, that while we talk about the collapse of the state or the collapse of the Kabul government, we should also remind ourselves that the collapse sometimes are, are used in a very kind of um, disturbing ways. For me, like an Afghan, for example, we don't see the collapse of Afghanistan. Afghanistan as a country remain and exist and it has its borders, it has its population. Yes, the leadership and regime change is now I am accepting it's part of our life. We have to see it several times in our life scale. So the key point is that we so far 
uh, every damage that has been made to state institutions is more at the very top po po political leadership levels. The technical and the driving machinery of the state institutions in Afghanistan are in their place, is functional, and is really probably at its best in comparison to any other time in the history. Because after all, with lots of funding and billions of dollars coming from abroad and with very uh, heartfully and genuine uh, you know, intentions of the technical people who have put their hearts into the work of building Afghanistan, building the nation, building the state, I think that's, that's there. And our hope and desire is to not see all of this gone just because some group politically coming and trying to take the leadership doesn't want this. So the systems are there, they just need a, a, a serious political commitment to, uh, to, to take it to make this uh, uh, future uh, better than what it is at the moment. I'll take the next round to respond on Rita. Thank you very much. Thank you for that articulate account. It raises lots of questions for us. Now I'd like to turn to Pashtana, and again, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I just wanted to thank everyone on the panel and thank you so much for inviting me. It's I couldn't have put it better than Dr. Nimak has already done. She is an Afghan champion uh, for women rights and her academic studies and I couldn't have put it better. So I'm just going to follow what she has said and uh, put it in a context where it's uh, gonna make sense in a ruler sense because I myself come from a ruler uh, province and from a rural district. And the reason that we personally saw that why the reason either the government in Kabul or let's say the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan was alienating, how did it happen and why did it ha happen over the course of uh, these few years? I want to start with the fact that uh, because we come from rural areas, so the only thing that uh, our people are good at is either agriculture or enrolling in army or enrolling in the Taliban. So these are the three jobs or livelihoods that people at our in our villages on a village level do. So because of the drought, because of a lack of water, um, a lot of people had to choose sides, either go to the army side or go to the Taliban side. Now, with both sides, with the Taliban side, of course, there are regional supporters who are supporting them. The Taliban go there, they get paid on a monthly basis. And then there is the army side where people enroll and they are sent to all these other uh, like you know, borders in the northern region, in the southern region, in the eastern region. And then at the end of the day, when they die, the only thing that comes to our district is their bodies. Now, what remains back after that, because we went through this again and again and again, because I myself lost 2,300 people from my own district. So I know the uh, how the loss is and how the feeling is. After the person is lost, we have a widow, we have their children. Now, why does the government alienate us? What, because when the widow goes to the Kabul, she's harassed. She's told that this, uh, this hasn't worked out. Her land is not there. That was allocated to her. The money that she uh, that is allocated to her is not given in some circumstances. At the end of the day, that woman who has lost her breadwinner also loses her uh, confidence in the government. Now, that's one side of the story. The same goes for all those children that are left from all those soldiers. And these are all soldiers. These are not big generals or people that I'm talking about. These are all the people who are on the front lines fighting. 
Now, as I told you, because we enlist in army more or in the Taliban, that's one way of the story. You continue alienating your ruler population through these policies like harassing, through grouping, through all these other means where you put people through torture and you don't give them what they deserve, what they have. That makes it dysfunctional. They come back to the ruler district. They don't have a school. They don't have electricity. They don't have a hospital or a clinic, which is allocated, by the way, every year. Uh, two clinics are allocated to a district, at least for my uh, uh, like the uh, information that I have. Now, you don't give them services. You don't give them the um, land that is allocated to them. You don't give them the basic right to exist as in a war widow. And then you expect them to support you. How is that possible? That's the reason people started withdrawing their trust on the current, uh, on the last government actually. Now that's how you function on a ruler uh, area. You already alienated all the people who actually needed that support. Now money is coming. People are giving you a lot of money from all these sites to make schools, to make uh, hospitals and clinics, to bring in electricity. But it's you and the elite group who is so corrupt to even look past that, to even look past the palace uh, 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 walls, to even uh, address those things. Now, due to corruption, you have already alienated your ruler population. You are starting to alienate your own uh, uh, city population or the urban population because of lack of services, the civic services or the electricity services or whatever is there. Then you start appointing people on a figurative level. You start uh, appointing people who you think might be a good person to talk on their behalf in negotiations. I mean, like negotiations are a place where you can talk with, with experience and you forget the whole country and you figure out that, okay, a few people that are going to pay me money and are going to launch these young uh, boys or girls' uh, careers, let's appoint them and send them to Doha. These children are all, they have studied in uh, London. And I, I mean, no offense, I myself studied in uh, Pakistan. And at times, I don't understand the uh, complex situations in rural areas. So I don't want to generalize it. But majority of them don't know what is happening. They live in posh palaces. They have electricity 24 by 7. They have water. They don't lose people. They haven't lost breadwinners. And even if they lose, they have alternatives to uh, either go and go even to the therapy. A rural population doesn't. So you launch their careers, you send them to Doha, they don't know how to negotiate. At the end of the day, again, people are alienated through the ruler, uh, the, or the whole country is alienated by the negotiations because you're literally launching careers. Last but not the least, you try to harass people through their ethnic affiliations. As Dr. Dr. Nehmet said, if you don't know how to play this uh, war, don't fight it in the first place. And that's what they do. They start alienating all these minorities, all these ethnicities, all these religious minorities by actually harassing their leaders. Now we all know what happened. Your group is also doing the corruption, but at the end of the day, you're literally uh, doing the same thing to another person who is trying to take responsibility for their own people. Then comes the regional politics. Every other country feels like it's their responsibility to fight their wars in Afghanistan and make sure that they fight in an, it in a way where they, uh, they are not harmed in person. 
Now that makes our country a, a level field of ground where people are fighting their own wars. And I don't have to name any regional actors, but they kept on fighting. They kept on fighting on our uh, water. They kept on fighting on our on people who came from Japan to help us. They even murdered them. There were people who were actually working in Afghanistan to make Afghanistan a better place. Those people were not left. And then at the end of the day, nobody takes responsibility. The money is coming. The government is corrupt. The Taliban are fighting. They are supported regionally, but nobody's taking the accountability note. Nobody's asking the questions. Where is the money going? Why is the ruler population not given the services that they need? Why are the people who are being alienated not taken back in the confidence? Why are the negotiations failing? Where, where, why is it failing in the first place? And most importantly, what is happening to all these international organizations? They are coming here. What are they actually doing? What are their services, long-term, short-term? So at the end of the day, it's not Afghans telling Afghanistan. It's actually the elites, the international organizations, the donors, the Taliban, the regional partners, all of them collectively failing Afghanistan in the in different ways, in politics, in economics, in uh, relationships, in diplomacy, in every other way. Now, imagine a country that has been through four decades of war and you continue hitting them on every uh, front. You uh, hit them with reg regional politics. You uh, politicize their water, their girls' education. You politicize their girls' rights. And then at the end of the day, you politicize every other thing. And then the people who are ruling them are actually corrupt. They don't even care. How is the go country going to survive? So at the end of the day, as Dr. Nimad said, it's not just a military uh, failure or like, you know, it's not just fall of Afghanistan. Afghanistan never fell. It's just the fact that there is no fall of Afghanistan, but who's calling shots in Afghanistan? That's the major point. And that's what I'm trying to say. And I'm going to be very honest. It was never the army that failed. It was never the army. It was the leadership that failed army and Afghanistan. The leadership that initiated Doha deal, that legitimized Doha deal, the leadership that didn't ask for corruption, the leadership that didn't stop the Taliban when they were abusing human rights and the humans, the leadership that didn't uh, make the political or the regional partners accountable. So I'll end with that. And that's the reason Afghanistan is actually going through all this uh, process. Thank you, Pastana. Very moving on the spot account. Denise, can I turn to you? Yes, thank you. I think that my task has been made very easy by the fact that the previous speakers have already covered enormous amounts of ground so that I can pick the bits that I think might be missing. Uh, with Antonio, we had the tension started right after bomb between what he calls the oligarchic forces and the te technocrats, uh, Orzala followed on looking at the role of elites and their dependence on external aid. And Pashtana did an amazing, eloquent job of looking at the multitudes of ways in which the people on the ground were alienated by regimes that were failing them systematically. To this picture, I think that I will add the missing bit of the responsibility of aid architecture after the fall of the Taliban, which we haven't mentioned. I will give you a very damning statistics provided by the economist Jeffrey Sachs. He estimates that less than 2% of US spending on Afghanistan reached Afghan people in the form of basic infrastructure and poverty reducing services. An answer immediately to Pashtana's there is money floating about, but where is it? 
A large portion of the funds were, as you know, siphoned off abroad to military and security contractor firms, to their local subcontractors. And there was, of course, a built-in corruption, which is now blamed on the Afghan elites when, in fact, it is the system in its entirety that was actually rotten through and through. If time permitted, I would give a lot of examples, but I will leave it at that. Now, the blueprint for this system was not invented in Afghanistan. It was, as you all know, applied in many conflict zones with so-called failed states. And the result in Afghanistan was far from impressive because as a result, you have a generation later, a life expectancy of 63 years and a child stunting rate of 38%, which frankly uh, puts flesh on the bones of what we heard from Pashtana. Um, aid, as you know, was counterinsurgency led and militarized. There is a great deal of speculation and conjecture about how the Taliban was dealt with or not dealt with in the immediate aftermath of the US-led invasion when they allegedly recognized the new government, demanded a deal. The point is, the fact remains that many provinces remained war zones where civilian populations were at the mercy of drone strikes and night raids. So we should not be overly surprised that in some regions there was palpable relief at the cessation of hostilities after the uh, withdrawal of the United States, illustrated by journalists such as Washington Post's Anand Gopal, who specifically went to regions that were hard hit by the counterinsurgency operations. So we must absolutely be clear about the winners and the losers of the 2004 and 221 periods. The winners were mainly in major urban centers, especially in Kabul, which as you know, experienced an aid-fueled boom. So I think that we should spend time interrogating and looking in detail at the aid architecture. I will close this part of my comments by saying that when I was in Kabul in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Taliban after the invasion, the aid architecture was totally chaotic. You had the Japanese doing uh, disarmament, demobilization and reintegration, while the US military were busy handing out attache cases of money to landlords to help them in the hunt of the remnants of Al-Qaeda. So we have to acknowledge that. What to expect of the Taliban? There, frankly, maybe I, I have some differences with Antonio who think that they were genuinely on the way um, to forming an interim government and possibly following a more moderate line. For my part, I never entertained any illusions in that respect, not because of divisions and dissensions in the ranks of the Taliban, but because of the permanent risk of being outflanked by radical tendencies. Time does not permit at this point an analysis of what is known as the Salafization of Islam in Afghanistan or indeed in Pakistan. For that, we would need to go back to the rule of Ziaul Haq in Pakistan and to the alliance between the CIA, the ISI, the Mujahideen groups with financial backing from Saudi Arabia during the fight against the Soviet occupation. I will briefly only refer to an interesting study on quite recent, 20, 
2019, I think, uh, on recruitment to the Islamic State Khorasan province, uh, pointing out that whereas the Taliban uh, recruit mainly rural, um, madrasa-educated youths who are in their majority ethnically Pashtun, the Islamic State Khorasan cells tend to recruit men and women from middle-class families. In fact, uh, with backgrounds not too dissimilar from those of the ruling elite, um, who find the Taliban's version of Islam contaminated and who aspire to a caliphate. Now, at a more fundamental level, I think we have to recognize that the roots of the Salafi jihadist surge uh, lie in what we might call roughly as the breakdown of traditional society in the 1970s, which became in the 1970s and which intensified with the decades of conflict discussed obviously by scholars like Olivier Roy and so on, mentioning that the rise of the Taliban is not a, um, an indicator of tradition or indigenous culture, but of the breakdown of it. Which now brings me to a vexed question we didn't touch upon sufficiently. And this is the question of gender and women. What of women? What of the future of women? On this question, I have to say that despite the PR value of the focus on women, I personally believe that the question of gender regimes of Afghanistan is one of the least understood facets of this question. This is because discussions on this question have become caught up in two parallel discourses and their distorting lenses. On the one hand, we had an interminable debate on feminism as imperialism, following the hypocrisy of invoking the desire to liberate Afghan women from the Taliban yoke as a motivation for US-led invasion. It is very clear that this is the discourse and the tendency that dominates Western academia, basically. On the other hand, we also had tri triumphalists and fairly uncritical celebrations of the progress made by Afghan women during a period that I had myself labeled donor-driven gender activism on purpose to distinguish it from the women's movements of Afghanistan, which predate the US intervention and I am sure will outlive the Taliban. So we have to make very sure that caught up in this discourses we overlook the reality of women on the ground, or Zala's reality, Pashtana's reality, and the reality of many others. So realities on the ground are much more complex. Let me tell you why I think that we have a very limited angle on the gender question in Afghanistan, because we are interpreting it through culturalist lenses that distort reality. And to close, I will give you one anecdote which has stuck in my mind from the time I was doing field work in Afghanistan a long time ago. I came across a family whose daughter had been married off nine years of age to a relative in a distant province. Now, on the face of it, you might say, ah, there we are, child marriage, families sending off their girls, marrying them. Upon further probing, it became quite clear 
that the reason they had done that was to protect their daughter from being claimed by a Taliban fighter at gunpoint, which is what was happening in that region at the time. So they had married off this daughter and sent her away to protect her. And here is the misunderstood nature of so-called Afghan patriarchy. We must make a very clear point here about why it is that it's so hard to give women's rights a citizenship. Because essentially, families and tribes claim for themselves the right to control the movements and the marriage prospects of their daughters. So it is very hard for women to get rights in their own persons, which is absolutely critical to citizenship rights, which is why whenever there has been a modernizing intervention from the top down, it was an attempt to expand women's space as citizens. The PDPA tried that, even Amanullah before, and then under the uh, governments between 2004 and two th 2021, we had the same phenomenon. What is clear there is that there is a tension between what the state demands and what families demand or extended families. And what you have to understand here very clearly is that the form of patriarchy represented by kin control over women, the control of brothers, fathers, and so on, is absolutely shattered when women become war booty. And I think that's an aspect of the Taliban and IS as well, that is not sufficiently underlined. The fact that young fighters of a poor background who do not have money for bride price can obtain brides at the point of a gun, which is what is happening right now. And of course, this is a phenomenal uh, breach of uh, Afghan cultural norms, okay? However, we must not forget that this is a huge incentive for young men, especially of modest backgrounds, because a very interesting study on masculinities in Afghanistan, which was coordinated by the Christian Nicholson Institute in Norway, looking at the strategies of Afghan male migrants, a study in fact by Aziz Hakimi, noted that a lot of migrants who were working in the diaspora in Istanbul in this particular case, were out there accumulating bride price for long years laboring because elopement or getting a wife by any other means was a dishonor for the family. So I think we must be very clear here that there are different kinds of hierarchies at work. And to talk of patriarchy in relation to the Taliban is an absolute fallacy. It is a form of totalitarianism that goes through the control of public space and the bodies of women, but because it is a political struggle, it does not disempower women, but it also disempowers men. I'm hearing of men migrating because they have daughters. So imagining that the Taliban project is not disempowering to the men of Afghanistan with a different vision. What I want to make very clear is that we are talking about contending political projects, okay? Uh, and the reason I'm underlining it so heavily 
is because we're very clear about this when we're talking about political economy, when we're talking about all sorts of things. When we come to gender, it collapses. And suddenly we lapse into crude culturalist categories. It means you have not lost any of your edge <laughs> in quite a few years that I've had a chance to talk with you. I'm, and you did part of my job for me in terms of, in terms of reflecting on the, on, on the speakers that came before you. Let me just put a, a few things forward and give each of you a chance to respond. One of the things that was striking to me when I had the opportunity to visit Afghanistan uh, with Antonio in 2005 was that this international, and I thought you put it very well, Denise, liberal state building project has deep flaws. And that what we saw happen in Afghanistan, we could predict at that moment. You build an army of 300,000 plus, but there is no fiscal basis created in the state, entirely dependent on foreign funding and also technology and organization. So we should not be surprised that this is, this, this is not a very powerful army. We should not be surprised when soldiers are not paid. We see the soldiers not paid in the armies built by foreigners in the Congo and elsewhere. Um, so there's an, a kind of artifact that's been created that was very unsustainable from the start in terms of that interventionist project. And it's not the first one because Afghanistan has seen many of them. I do think it's really striking that in all these years, despite the energy of the Afghan people really mobilizing to do new things, and people like uh, Pashtana on the ground, I, I find extraordinary work being done in civil society. I still kind of ask to the panel, what, what's the sort of economic future of Afghanistan? During this last 20 years, there has been what many of you refer to in different ways as, as a kind of rent economy based on aid that went make, you know, in large part to foreign consultants and businesses and whatnot, hugely, but then also each part of the Afghan elites had their, their take on. So um, it'd be very interesting to know also from Pastana, looking at the rural areas, what would be the aspiration transforming that rural economy. And Antonio, in his book, Taliban at War, I was very struck by just trying to understand the organization as a polycentric organization, far from being a centralized organization. So when we talked about a, a kind of the, the failure to consolidate a political settlement, as Ala mentioned it, um, when it was possible, perhaps, to approach the Taliban, when they were weakest, they were excluded. We see this kind of exclusion of different political forces and other foreign interventions, too. It happened in Iraq and, um, and in Libya. And this leads to a very fractured situation in per being perpetually reproduced. Um, so, Antonio, I do wonder what you think the prospects are of the Taliban itself, even before talking about the other elites it would engage with, can come together around its program to, to man the, the state. Uh, as Orzala quite rightly said, the state has not um, disappeared. 
And and Pastana, I I wonder if you can say anything about the staying power of civil society. There has been, you know, this huge kind of effort of people like yourself doing quite courageous things. Um, there, of course, depending to some extent on foreign resources to be able to do it. But there's been a lot of social change in the process, I imagine. And I'm wondering what it looks like now going forward. Finally, I think I think your insights on gender are absolutely crucial, Denise. And it goes far beyond Afghanistan. We've talked about the gender, donor-driven gender activism. I think that that is what gendering development has been so much about. Checklists. And, 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 and mainstreaming project, ignoring the political economy of gender, which you so you know, succinctly captured in, 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 in Afghanistan. And I think it helps us to understand more about the stories of, of ISIS fighters um, being given brides. And we need to understand gender put into that, into that economic context. And I'm wondering what can, what should we be doing as we're researching these questions as young people and young students who are studying gender and development? How should they be approaching these issues going forward and in relationship to real life situations like the uh, what we can see the new threats for what gains have been made by the activism of Pashtana and her sisters, new threats being, uh, being faced by women in Afghanistan going forward. So let me not go on um, because I could, you all said such interesting things. There's so many things I would like to interact with and instead allow you each um, to return. I'm looking at the time, Antonio. Yeah, well, um, on, on Taliban police entries, uh, I think the, the key issue at this point in time is that if you look at uh, the Islamic Republic, in the beginning was held together by the fact that the president, first Karzai Dengani, uh, was the conduit for billions of dollars coming into the country. So that kept the politically together because for all the differences and all the rivalries, they didn't want to lose that money. And the money had to be redistributed from the very top. Now the Taliban don't have that, you know, they don't have uh, this flow of money uh, coming from, uh, coming to the top to be redistributed. And that, uh, is a problem because the centrifugal tendencies within Taliban uh, are not offset by any kind of you know, real interest to, to be together. And that's why apparently in the meetings uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the past weeks, when the South leadership of the Taliban tried at the beginning to keep uh, their Khanis out of, of the cabinet, uh, Sirajuddin Akhani was banging on uh, on the table or the desk, I don't know where it was banging, but anyway, it was shouting and basically threatened uh, to pull out, you know, and, and forced the, uh, well, it actually, it, it, it paralyzed the formation of the cabinet and forced the Pakistani to intervene to mediate between different factions. Um, so it, it's very uh, shaky at the moment. And uh, the situation is compounded by the fact that the, the, the few, you know, basically the Taliban who are in control of the revenue that the Taliban still receive, which is largely from the 
the taxation for the drug trade and the taxation of smuggling out of Iran, contraband, um, uh, they're not actually well represented or not represented at all in the, in the cabinet, in the government. So, you know, they, they don't have a very strong interest to make sure that the money that, they, that is collected in the areas in the West uh, makes it to the coffers of the uh, Afghan state. And they've, they've been promising the past already where uh, Taliban governors in the provinces were siphoning off funds, you know, tax revenue, and instead of sending to the leadership, they're keeping it. So I would imagine that, again, the situation like this is, is likely to happen because, you know, simply you don't have much at stake at the center. So these two issues together, I think they strengthen the centrifugal tendencies. Uh, we have to see what happens. If the Taliban are able to get some money from somewhere, I appear they are trying. They are having big discussion among themselves about what to do. Clearly, they're a bit out of the debt. Um, and they are still struggling to understand uh, entirely what is requested from them. And, you know, this internal division also paralyzed in terms of making policy decisions, you know. So uh, those who were working for a coalition uh, have been uh, outruled and they are in the minority now. The descent of the Taliban, essentially the Taliban operate as a, as a coalition uh, itself. So the center of the Taliban uh, uh, is aligned now with the hardliners simply because they didn't think they could manage without having the Atlantis on board. Because Atlantis essentially are the military leaders, you know, or the majority of the military leaders. So the leadership is not in a position to do without them, uh, now less than ever. So, you know, can they, can they mobilize funds? Um, uh, I think they have to, but whether they are willing to make the kind of, you know, compromises that might be required, and the compromises are different types of compromises, but the only three possible source for, uh, you know, a major, inflow of money uh, because Iran doesn't have a lot of money to give away. Russia has a bit more, but is not interested in giving it away anyway. Pakistan doesn't have the money. So is Qatar, is China, and potentially Saudi Arabia, although uh, the, the warming up uh, is not there yet. Although they, they went from they very cold about the Taliban to trying to establish some kind of relationship, but not, not warm enough to, you know, to start paying. So, so that reduces really to Qatar and China. And of course, both of these countries have their own demands, especially China. And the demands are quite onerous and the Taliban know what it means. You know, they had to, if the Chinese had to provide budget support to the new regime in exchange, they would want to have uh, very favorable conditions for the investment uh, in Afghanistan. Basically, the Taliban would have to sell out. Uh, and that is something that they are reluctant to do. It's something they're considering as, as, a, as a last resort, uh, but uh, they, they, they would be disinclined to do so. The Qataris are worried about the image. Uh, they don't want to be associated with a regime that is controversial. So they are warning them, they want them to sort the image out, but it's difficult because um, at the same time, the Taliban are actually objectively facing very difficult situation on the ground. You know, they are facing uh, already another war with Islamic State. They had a, a mini war in Panjshir um, and they had to control the country with limited resources. You know, they have maybe 70,000 mobilized men to control rather large country and big cities, you know, um, and that's, um, 
And that means that much of the country is very thinly garrisoned by the Taliban. Um, and of course, they don't have a police force. So it's even harder, you know, when you control a city with a military force, they don't have the skills of a police force. So, uh, and they're also very heavy handed. So we're seeing already that in dealing with the Islamic State, the Taliban are resorting to that squads, essentially, you know, so rounding up suspects and they can then disappear or reappear dead. <laughs> so um, that that is likely to compound the, you know, the situation. Thank you. Let me pass on to Orzala, please. And yeah. Thank you. Um, I will very briefly um, refer to the uh, question of, uh, you know, what can we expect of their return in terms of Taliban power and, and to some of the points that were already made earlier. But before other points, with regards to women and women's struggle, I want to sort of, from my own position, reiterate the point I have always made back in the uh, earlier years that when I was faced with this question, where will women be in the absence of international uh, funding international support. I always made that point very clear to internationals. I think I don't need to make it clear to my own Afghan fellows because everyone is witness to this. Some see it, some close their eyes, but that's the reality that the struggle for women's rights is not a new phenomenon in Afghanistan. This is an ongoing struggle. The intensity of it, the speed of it, the scale of it differs from time to time in the history, but it would never be stopped. In examples of that and in examples of a post-donor-driven uh, gender activism is already seen in the streets of uh, some cities uh, by women uh, trying to very peacefully, without any arms, without uh, any aggression, are using their rights to basically demonstrate or protest, uh, asking for uh, their rights to, to have jobs, to, to have access to education and so forth. Um, Taliban's uh, ruling uh, in the one and a half, uh, past one and a half months, although they keep insisting that they need time, it's a military government at the moment, so and that means mostly don't expect much from us. We are just there to maintain some level of law and order. But their actions towards women in itself requires a little bit of attention. Um, Undoubtedly, Taliban, I mean, typically in terms of what they are identified with is, is this issue of women. But it's not only themselves trying to fall into this trap, but also internationals always are obsessed with Taliban's position on women. Uh, they themselves give them enough evidence to, to think so. But I think uh, as a result, what we are seeing now uh, is more towards the whole issue of women, women's rights, women's position in the society, girls' education of as a basic, basic right is becoming a bargaining chip. And in my sort of reading, I think it's more uh, used as a bargaining chip to basically pressurize the international community. This is the leverage the ruling power has over the international community. There are no longer bases, there are no longer troops. They cannot pressurize some individuals or some organizations in the country, all are gone and evacuated. They just take the woman hostage in some ways and try to pressurize the international for their demands. So what is the results? What could be done? I think what is critical is to make a very clear distinction between engagement and uh, endorsement or political or formal diplomatic recognition. 
There has to be a distinction between the two. I'm very pleased to hear the Qatar foreign minister showing some concerns about how they are disappointed on some of the Taliban action. I think they are listening. If they don't listen to the, the Western allies, they should listen to, to, to the country that was hosting and feeding them so well for the last few years in Doha and Qatar, the leaders. So I hope that they will listen to that. And it's not a matter. They can have any kind of pressure or any kind of negotiations with international community, but they should not play with the life of the future generations of Afghanistan, who, particularly the girls who are deprived of their rights to education. So they have basically two, two choices. Either they become and remain as restricted as they are, and we read that as a way of seeing their ruling lasting not too long or engaged and be more open to discussions, conversation, and particularly on issues of concerns of the half of the population, and then the situation may change. So it's a very critical situation to, to see it uh, in that way. I have one comment to make also in terms of, you know, looking into women's struggle or civil society's struggle. Again, civil society is very similar to women in my view. We have a very vibrant and strong civil society nearly none or very, very few of the civil society people have left Afghanistan. Majority are in the country, they are in rural areas, they are in urban areas. We talk to them, we are communicating with them. And this idea or this notion that everyone just leaves the country is just bizarre. Yes, people left the country, some are on the way to go out. And they are going not because they, 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 they are dying to go out of Afghanistan and leave their house and life and livelihoods. They are thinking of leaving the country because of economic situation. So what would be potential sources in the absence of the massive international uh, funds or, 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 or donors fund? I think we need a phase, a transition phase that could cover the immediate humanitarian aid with key lessons to be learned from the past. We need to cover this transition period in terms of you know, looking more, following more forward looking policies that can ensure that this, there is zero tolerance for any kind of dependency. And it's more forward looking in the sense that makes the country and its economy more self-sufficient. So it sounds a little bit idealistic now to talk about that, but I think it's, it's our best way forward. And finally, not uh, last but not least, my advice to younger generation who are interested in, in studying gender is to really highlight the notion of agency. I think that's, I am not a gender expert and I'm uh, embarrassed to speak in presence of Denise about this, but it's really something critical. And we've had a lot of discussions about this in the course of my own you know, studies and learning that it's critical to not consider women, even in the worst uh, circumstances, like uh, in, in some instances in some parts of our history uh, as helpless and passive victims. They've always made that agency. And I think that that, that would turn the perspective towards uh, studying patriarchy, studying gender, studying masculinity, that will change really the perspective in terms of, you know, learning and reflecting more. Thank you. Thank you, Arzada. Pashtana. Um, thank you so much for the answers. Dr. Nima, she put it right when she says that uh, when it comes to Afghan women, we shouldn't be reduced just to like, you know, one of those tools that could be studied or looked through a lens, but rather we have our own um, points that we are and our own lives to take agency over. Um, 
adding on to that point and then coming to uh, coming to the economic growth and future of Afghanistan, um, I just want to give an example. My grandmother was the first wife of my grandfather, and my grandfather remarried again because my grandmother was uh, used to talk back. So my grandmother was like, "Okay, I'm gonna leave the house," and she left the house. She took the children, she educated them, she put them through schools, through colleges. She made them independent, and then she educated her daughter. She marries her off and she lived as a single mother. And this is not in the 60s, it's in the 40s, where some regional countries didn't even exist, by the way. So she does all that on her own in rural Afghanistan, where she's daughter of a chief, married to a chief, and now is living as a single mother. Then my auntie, she remar- she's married. She is facing uh, domestic violence because she's married into another tribe. And because of the tribal feuds and everything, she uh, is like, you know, uh, every day uh, facing domestic violence. She goes on, she files for divorce. She loses her children custody, but she gets the divorce. She moves on, she studies. She becomes a teacher and she contributes to to the society responsibly and becoming a responsible citizen. The reason that I'm giving you these uh, details, normally people are ashamed to give these sort of details. We tend to hide the reality. Okay, my grandmother left my grandfather and she just raised them on your own in rural Afghanistan. Um, My uh, auntie, she was my father's sister. She was divorced and then she remarried and she studied and blah, blah, blah. So the reason that I'm stating these, these are the late 70s and the late 40s that I'm talking about. And these ladies made it to that uh, possibility of surviving. Uh, Even if my grandmother was not educated in schooling, she was educated only in Arabic and Pashto, and she could only study Quran and uh, Qudri. So the reason I'm stating this, back in the day, she did two jobs one in agriculture and the second was mending things although she came from a very posh family but she did it to get through the day to put her kids through the school now today when looking at Afghanistan we are once again going through the same phase but at the moment people who are in rural areas need the following things they need uh, what we call it seed money or seed funding it's not big money Afghanistan was never saved by big money because the big money that came to Afghanistan would have made Afghanistan richer three times we would have developed three countries with the money that came to Afghanistan with the way I look at it so at the moment we don't need big money we need the right money that goes to the people you know through the right channels a family of 30 people uh, I'm in touch with we are helping them buy a zaranj which is like an automobile uh, rickshaw where they can transport goods from one way to another that boy, I'm going to buy him that Zaranj only if I talk to him and uh, talk him through the whole thing. If he's going to commit to sending his daughters to school, he has two daughters. And he said, very well, it was in the morning when I did it. I know it's bribing, but it's helping. It's working, right? So it's putting the right money in the right place and asking the right questions. You know, tomorrow in 10 years, maybe Pashtana won't be able to help. Pashtana might have her own life. And then this guy who have put his daughters to, through schools uh, and his sons through school would be able to help with normal jobs like teaching, uh, like tutoring, uh, like uh, doing their agricultural work. I'm not saying make women ministers in Afghanistan all of a sudden, because that's not going to happen. As Denise said, Our uh, the way we look at gender is way different than the way world looks at our gender politics. 
So we have to understand we need women in working spaces on a very basic level. And this is how we do it. The second thing that we need to do is the fact that, okay, this is how we empower the rural communities through giving them that seed money or the right money that they need or the right services, to be honest, at this point. The second thing is the government shouldn't be used as a policing tool. It's not a policing tool. It's there to serve the people. It's there to give the service. It should be giving them electricity. It should be giving them clean water. It should be giving them schools, clinics, instead of politicizing the layers that I'm going to wear when I'm going out or the sort of heels that I'm wearing or the way I'm talking or the perfume I'm wearing. This is not how the world works. In five years from now, Taliban may be in power and the Taliban may not be in power. We thought Ghani is going to be here for the rest of the five years, but he wasn't, right? So in five years, we may not know that the Taliban exists, but we know that there is a high rise and demand for girls in coding. So we should be training girls in coding right now. We should be training girls in midwifery and medicine right now because in five years, we need those girls. We know that in the coming five years, we need girls in accounting, in STEM, in teaching, in faculties. So when you need all those things, because there will be an increase in population, girls will go to school, girls will go to universities. They will need female teachers because at the end of the day, even after 10 years, we love segregation and we are going to stick to segregation. It's not just a Taliban thing. It's uh, an an acceptable thing uh, throughout Afghanistan. So we need female teachers, female professors, uh, female accountants, female STEM leaders. And for all that to start, we have to start helping those families that can actually go through their day without begging, without starving their children. Because the first step towards stability is economically empowering the people on a very basic level. You don't have to give them 10 greenhouses. You have to give them one greenhouse. That's the only thing that they need right now. You you only need to give them one zaranj. You only need to give them one tailoring um, kit for them to survive because that's how Afghan communities are. They work collectively and they survive. So I'm always gonna talk from a grassroots level. I can't do macro level. In my head, I'm always doing community level. So for me, it's very important to empower the parents through technical support that we have right now, women can do amazing embroidery. I know I have been very against embroidery in the past and I might be even in the future. But if that's the only thing that women can do right now, support them. Afghan diaspora can and the donors can throughout the world. The fact that we took all this money and nothing happened is the reason that we are feeling uh, fail, uh, failing right now so much. N- right now is the ask and the, the demand for the right money and in the right places on right resources so that they're sustainable in the next 10 years when there are no Taliban in power or there is another government in power which is very inclusive. So we always have to think big but also the fact that current political situation is not a long-term situation. It can be changed, it can be challenged. It can become inclusive, it can become exclusive. We always have to look at a plan plan B and plan A, but most importantly, there should be sustainability. I don't mind who is in ARG, as long as women get to go to work, they get to go to schools, they get to contribute to the Afghan society as they used to in the 70s, in the 60s, and even in the 2000s. So I'm gonna end my talk with this, thank you. Again, very striking. You know, I have to say, on behalf of all our students and all the LSE community, I'm sure our watchers on YouTube, elsewhere in the world, that we feel really privileged to have had all four of you speaking tonight and Urzala, 
and Denise and Ashtana, uh, thank you very much. I mean, we will want to continue to learn from you. And I know that, I, I know Ozala that probably David Mansfield should be talking to Bastana <laughs> about taxation. Um, I think we, we have a, a good and in-depth conversation about the unfolding situation. And it's not all together a depressing situation. We hear a lot of shoots of what could be possible. And I hope our students too will take inspiration from this to con continue to study what's going on in Afghanistan and how the situation unfolds in the months and of course, years to come. So thank you very much. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have you. And I remind the rest of the audience that please meet us again next Friday when Hajun Chang is coming to talk to us yeah, about political, the political economy of Parasite, the film about inequality in South Korea. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.